Hey there, thanks for tuning in. This is the first episode of the Square One Season One podcast series. Um, this episode is with Andy Tuthope. And the goal for this episode was to really hone in on the concept of cryptocurrency and why it matters culturally and uh, from a societal, like historical perspective. Andy is a bit of a, a nomadic philosopher and anthropologist, as well as a technologist, and he is a really, really fun person to talk to and has just absolutely loads of wisdom to unpack from his many musings and literary uh, pursuits, as well as his, his just generally deep thoughts on the subject of token economics and, um, and society. Uh, before we get into that, I, I do want to give a bit of an outline. There's some, some housekeeping uh, structure to the podcast series. So for those who want to know more about the way that we're structuring things, please visit some more of those intro uh, conceptual podcasts. So there's a few couple minute episodes of, hey, here are the concepts we will be discussing. I'm going to continue to create some more introductory concepts as well as some of these deep dives with specific individuals within the ecosystem. And by the end of this series, we hope to have about 10 episodes of deep dives and then a plethora of these introductory concepts. I'm not sure the, uh, the exact number, but I think that it will continue to grow as uh, as this this program develops and people come with questions. The last thing to point out is that we do have documentation. Um, essentially, it's an encyclopedia of crypto knowledge that I've been building out on the side uh, that's located in our Git book. And so um, that's the general structure of the program and just wanted to let you know. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. We're really excited to share this. And I hope you enjoy my discussion with Andy Tuthope. Welcome to Square One, a place to deepen your crypto knowledge. I'm your host, James Duncan. Tuthope. Okay, cool. Tuthope. Yeah, Tuthope. Sweet. So um, thanks thanks for being here, Andy. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I kind of, so, you know, Andy's a bit of a guinea pig. This is one of the first podcast recordings. And, and for the... Um, for the purpose of Square One, I really wanted to bring in people who have a deep understanding and intuition for um, why cryptocurrency is valuable today. And Andy is one of those people who I think has a really holistic understanding of the inherent values of, of, of crypto in a lot of ways and why they um, why these currencies could be used to fundamentally change the way humans coordinate. I also find Andy to be someone who is a bit of a, a you know, he's one of the more human focused technologists within this space. As far as I'm, I'm concerned, I think the first time I met you, Andy was in Berlin and you, you had a talk on, um, uh, can you, can you remind me like the memory device or something you compared, um, crypto um, to crypto to. Sure. Sure. That's a 1945 essay by Vannevar Bush called as we may think. 
and he's mm. writing as the director of scientific affairs after World War II, speaking about how scientists had collaborated on scales not before seen as a result of the war and kind of wondering how they might advance that. And in particular, he's kind of looking at this problem of what he calls the human record. You know, he says that the rate at which we're accumulating knowledge far outpaces our ability to consult it. And so uh, he comes up with the solution for storing this record and consulting it. And his solution is it's the Memex, which is a machine that allows you to pull up two books at any given time. And they're all categorically organized like you would find in the library, but you can draw user trails through them. Uh, and then you know, you could take my user trail and plug it into your Memex and it would be so much more than just a hyperlink. It would be like every book that I've ever read and all the notes that I have in it would be sort of plugged into your your Memex that would enhance our ability to consult the, the record of human knowledge and therefore make better decisions. Uh, so I was giving this talk in particular in the context of trying to build uh, a social communication layer chats natively into Web3. Uh, Berlin was a good place mm -hmm. for that kind of discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Berlin was a perfect, <clears throat> a perfect environment for these. Um, and really, to me, Berlin's like the pillar of the, uh, or the root of the philosophical thought that, you know, that, 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 that inspires the crypto industry in a lot of ways, or at least um, as far as it's it's also i mean the history of berlin too is kind of interesting as far as it um um being uh, uh open to to you know crypto and blockchain and, and i think it, it would also be you know to me like berlin and then um singapore are two kind of areas of the world that both have these um they're very crypto friendly in certain ways and berlin i think is more about the maybe the philosophy whereas singapore is more about the like even the taxes or something like that um, maybe as well as the philosophy, but um, but uh, although I'm not as familiar with Singapore, um, but I, I don't yeah don't don't want to get too sidetracked because I think I I really want to hone in on a few uh, things and just talk to you about um, uh, sort of the value of cryptocurrency the in the in the like overarching values um, that it provides for people, um, and this is kind of more of an intro. Uh, you know, session. So this is hopefully for people who aren't that familiar with crypto, and or maybe are just learning about it, or or maybe all they know about it is the financial, you know, speculation, which is cool. But um, but what I'm really curious is, you know, they really, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency. They really come from a school of thought of um, of software development as well, and, and they in uh, you know, it, it comes from the birth of the internet, I think, with, you know, the free software movement and, um, and that side of, of, uh, of how society maybe should be, sort of, right? Um, I guess, let's see, I don't know if you would want to comment on that, or I, I also just have some open questions to, to ask, and I'm curious about, you know, your answer to these. We can start here because it's a it's a deep topic, right? We could actually just spend the whole podcast talking about this one thing, which is the word value, right? Uh, people 
particularly those who've not really had to ever interface with the financial system or with high technology more than downloading an app from their bank or even just you know, going to the ATM and drawing cash or however it is that operates in your particular country and, uh, and life tend to think that value is just what money signifies. It doesn't go deeper than that, right? Uh, we trust uh, that there is someone <laughs> either at the bank or in the government or somewhere in the system that is securing the value that this $10 notes supposedly holds. Um, and for a very long time, many people have questioned that. Right? This is not something new. Uh, the value that any particular kind of money has carried has always been a point of contention, particularly between those that have power and those that don't. Uh, because those that have power are the ones who get to define what is valuable and how valuable it is, as opposed to those who don't. Right? Um, in particular, we can say that what value really is is trust in clearly shared truths. Uh, now, for a long time, at least in our kind of current generational memory, it has been a clearly shared truth that nation states and central banks have been trustworthy enough to secure the financial value of paper notes. This was not always the case, though, right? When uh, <laughs> When, when, when paper notes became a thing, when there were these IOUs issued from banks that were backed by hard physical assets such as gold or silver, people were very, very skeptical about them. Right? It took about 400 years to genuinely accept that paper currency was you know, legal tender. For, for many hundreds of years, <laughs> people would not accept that, right? Uh, and prior to this, of course, like even the development of coins of the realm, you know, with the king's face on them, uh, were very contentious uh, topics. And it gets even weirder, right? Because if you look into the history of money in Europe, say, particularly around the time of Charlemagne, you know, they had virtual currency. Charlemagne's entire empire was backed by virtual currency. There were these, uh, again, coins of the realm. And, and there was literally something called crying the currency up or crying the currency down by which the king could declare the value of a given coin. <laughs> so all like well-documented history and none of these, you know, the, the currency itself didn't actually really exist in great quantity. It was just that as long as everybody believed that they could possibly redeem uh, whatever they were operating on, which was mostly credits for some gold or silver coin, then trade happened easily and naturally. Mm -hmm. And so it comes back and always to this point, no matter at which stage in history you look at it, that, that it's always trust in clearly shared truths. Right? This is not absolute truth, capital T, it's just social consensus. Uh, and to say that you know money is a convenient fiction that allows for trade between strangers is not to trivialize this, right? Fiction is uh, not opposed to truth. <laughs> Fiction is, in fact, the lie that reveals the truth. And so we've, the course of human history can, in fact, be one 
you know, that you chart by the development of increasingly more efficient fictions for trading with uh, more and more strangers. Cryptocurrency is just the latest mm -hmm. in a long development along those lines. And in particular, one which takes the abstraction of money to its greatest degree yet. You see, the problem with gold or silver, or indeed wampum shells or other collectibles that people have used throughout history, is that these things have in and of themselves some intrinsic value. So gold can be used for jewelry, platinum can be used in catalytic converters these days. Uh, beads and shells also have aesthetic value. And so the fact that they have some intrinsic value is in fact the very thing which makes them inefficient forms of money <laughs> because it muddies the waters. Whereas when you have a purely digital abstraction as a representation of value, not only can you fulfill these three critical features of money, i.e. that it's a unit of accounts, a store of value and a medium of exchange, you can begin to do even more things precisely because there's not an intrinsic physical value associated with the thing. So for instance, cryptocurrencies for the first time in history not just fulfill those three features of money, they also give us a universal ledger of transactions that is public and auditable by anyone in the world. That is a feature of, of money that we have engineered, that we have made. Uh, has never existed before, right? For the first time in history, the tool that we use to record history is fundamentally shared. It's not owned just by the victors. That changes the power dynamics in terms of how we create, describe, and transfer value enormously. Uh, and while it's not a silver bullet, <laughs> um, because silver is an inferior form of currency, <laughs> it can, you know, it can be used to think of quite radically different and if you're uh, a software developer, quite exciting forms, particularly of organization and coordination at scale. Love that. Um, <clears throat> I think we just stop there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only kind of kidding because like the amount of wisdom that was just poured onto whoever's listening to this was perfect. Like this is exactly the root of what I wanted to get into with, with you, which um, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, um, that that it just it just like naturally went there because really the idea and concept of of money is something that most people won't have a real understanding of or won't have thought about prior to getting into cryptocurrency and blockchain, and then on top of that they really won't understand the internet on top of that, right? And and then combining both of these abstract unfamiliar meta systems um, into something that ultimately is deeply ingrained in our psychology and our human history is um, is a pretty um, it's it's almost an existential kind of challenge to 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 uh, dig into and find the underlying root or value of um, but I think you did that really or you, you kind of explained it in a very elegant way, and I, I appreciate you kind of sharing your um, your perspective on where this has come from, um, and also even thinking about the extent to which money, paper money, the dollar that we know today, is a relatively novel concept for humans, right? Um, and it's only existed 
I mean, you know, it, there's probably other currencies that have existed longer than the dollar that maybe that maybe have, you know, have, have, um, ha have a longer history in a similar way that the U.S. Has, has one of the shortest, it's one of the, like, you know, the youngest empires still compared to many of the, the previous, um, um, you know, uh, conquerors of the world. Sure, sure. Um, these, mm. All of these things become the water in which we swim, you know, and we're largely speaking unaware of them. I mean, even credit cards, right? Credit cards are only 60 years old. <laughs> and for the first 20 years, you know, the first credit card was um, issued by Diners Club and it, and it, it, it wasn't even plastic <laughs> and it was mostly a traveler's check, mm -hmm. right? Again, it took, you know, decades for people to accept that this, like, you, you want to swipe with plastic and pay, you're not going to give me cash. You know, I mean, that was a, a it was a huge thing. It, it took a long time to accept that that was a valid form of payments. And now it's just, particularly across the most developed countries in the world, it's just accepted. I mean, what do you mean you don't take visa? Are you kidding? Uh, and so th these things very quickly become the water industry swim. And yet, as you say, they, you know, both money and you know the internet is the latest instantiation of communication technologies. These go back to before recorded history. And what's most interesting, you know, in thinking about like the deeper roots of money as it relates to value, is that money as a technology is older than writing. Right? Uh, in fact, the first forms of writing that we have come from the Middle East, a place called ancient Sumer, which is where Iran and Iraq are these days. Uh, and it's writing about social debts, right? What, what, what happened was you would go to the local warehouse and take your sheep or your corn or your produce or whatever you'd made or grown in that particular season and you would store it there and you would get what we call these days a bill of lading, right? And this bill of lading would be a clay envelope uh, and it would have imprinted on it, you know, if you gave them 50 sheep, there'd be 50 little clay sheep in this envelope, which we then rolled up uh, and sealed, literally, right? So like the concept of seals comes from all the way back then. And uh, gradually, of course, you know, this is not a very scalable way of recording who's storing what in your warehouse and you run into problems because you don't have enough bloody clay sheep tokens to kind of stick in the envelopes to give to the people who are storing them with you. And so they, instead of like, uh, you know, using these little clay uh, symbols would use a reed stylus to score into these clay envelopes the shape of a sheep. Uh, and this develops over time into cuneiform, right? The first, the first kind of writing that we have before even hieroglyphics. It's these pictorial symbols of, of the social debts that people have with one another, right? Because money is the first networked technology. It, it, it's what allows us to relate with those outside of our immediate kin group. It's what allows us as a species to engage in what we call reciprocal altruism, right? This is the critical uh, barrier in biological evolutions, which humans are the only ones to get past. Uh, you know, the fact that we can trade with others outside of our kin group and do reciprocal altruism. Richard Dawkins says that money is a token of delayed reciprocal altruism, right? We can engage with people uh, outside of our immediate communities by virtue of this abstraction, 
right? Um, and what's really interesting <laughs> about this is that, you know, the development of, of money, you can see from the story about cuneiform is that, you know, there's actually really never been a difference between the record of our social debts to one another and the record, our mythic records of how we organize, right? So human, human societies have always been organized around these myths. And, and they're one and the same thing, right? It's just that as we, you know, adopted more and more financialized number-based forms of recording uh, our indebtedness to one another, and as uh, <laughs> we, you know, moved into more and more institutionalized and dogmatic forms of religion, uh, these two things became very, very separate. But Bitcoin and these kind of technologies, the record on which we record social debt and the records that is the sort of mythic uh, means by which we organize one and the same thing again, right? Uh, and it's just that mm -hmm. we now have truly networked technologies in the sense of this worldwide web of light, right? Which is literally what the internet is when you think about it. It allows us to transcend space and time and we're speaking with each other, you know, you're more than halfway across the world with me. Uh, we're in different time zones, different continents, and yet we're able to interact. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, we're seeing these technologies uh, that allow human beings to relate at various different levels, both the socio-political in terms of natural language, but also the transactional and economic collapse. Uh, and, and that's what got a lot of people excited about the way that we can organize and, and the possibilities for new and different kinds of value that are not necessarily controlled by you know powerful intermediaries and middlemen. Because this is the other critical point about that first cuneiform example is that faith and finance have never been separate things, right? There's always, there was this huge taboo on breaking the seals. Uh, of those bills of lading and other, you know, because like bad things would happen if you broke the seal. <laughs> you know, the, uh, and, and, and if you think about the fact that, uh, you know, the Latin for religion is religio, religare, which means bond. It's, it's literally, your religion is literally a bond. It is <laughs> an agreement between you and God to pay back your, the debt of life, right? That's kind of how it's imagined. And so faith and finance have never been separate. Uh, it's, as I say, it's just uh, this fact has become somewhat obscured. Uh, and, you know, when, when you think about many of the stories that are related throughout any world religion, uh, and, and, and the, the most applicable one here is Jesus throwing the tables out of the temple, right? In three different gospels, the he, he gives a reason for doing this, right? It's not just that, like, oh, tables don't belong in the temple, and that these two things, faith and finance, are fundamentally incompatible. It's rather that that he states explicitly that the temple authorities are thieving from the people because they have uh, gated access to the people's, you know, ability to create meaning for themselves. So these networked technologies. Are give us again the ability to create meaning for ourselves, which is sacred, right? It's not in some ridiculous woo-woo religious mythical sense, but the sacred is that which extends beyond me. It's that 
thing which is bigger than my individual life and situation and circumstance. If you have a network technology that is ownerless, borderless, peer-to-peer and global that nobody can control, then your ability to create meaning for those and you know, for yourself and those that you love is greatly extended. Uh, and yeah, again, you know, that, that gives us the ability to organize, to think of ways of connecting, of ways of creating and distributing value that uh, have not existed before. I think that that's brilliant. Um, and also just to kind of hone in on that, there's, there's the two uh, narratives that we've created for ourselves that you're defining as um, that were initially the same, right? The way that we organize is the way that we also are transacting and financially, right? Um, and then over time, separation of church and state, political ideologies, and different leaders taking society in multiple directions uh, have created a abstract distinction between those um, both of those narratives, right? A narrative of, of organizing ourselves and the narrative of, um, of value transfer and, and, and transactions, right? Is that what, do you feel like that's accurate? I guess I'm, I'm curious just to refine that back to, um, to understanding what that mythical, um, you know, what, what mythical uh, trains of thought are, 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 are in uh, coordination. Sure, yeah, yeah, it's a really deep question because as I say, this, it's, it's very much the water in which we swim, which we're so uh, infrequently mm. aware of. And mm. see, so one of, one of my favorite anthropologists, in fact, I think probably the greatest anthropologist of our time uh, is David Graeber, who recently passed away very sadly. And he, he wrote this book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and he's written many others, which in fact are better, but Debt is a great book and everybody should read it because it's the only book written on debt. Many people have written books about money, currency, coinage, all sorts of things, but almost no one about debt. Um, and it goes to the heart of, of what you're really asking about here because like there is this deep ambivalence in debt and it picks out the links between money and morality, which we are implicit in any conversation that we have about it, and yet which are very, very difficult to speak about because like money is this dirty thing, you know, and, and in particular debt is an even more dirty thing, and it's not something that's ever brought up in polite conversation, right? But it's the thing itself which runs our entire society, you know, I mean, we live in a world which has over, is, is over $200 trillion in debt, which, which is actually unimaginable, right? Like you can't genuinely call to mind what 200 trillion is and the deepest question about it who is it all owed to right like <laughs> nobody can really genuinely answer that uh and 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 this it points to this fact right which is that we we have this kind of moral feeling that one ought to repay one's debts uh and and, and the question is where does that come from right um and you know, if you look into any of the mythic traditions, and it really is not, it's not just the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition or Hinduism or Buddhism, all of them have this feature about them, which is that like your life is a, a gift given to you or a debt upon you, which must be repaid, right? There are various different ways to repay this service, faith, 
love, generosity, kindness, integrity, honor, nobility, these kinds of things. But it's always this particular pattern, you know, like you, you have a debt to your parents. The way that you repay them is by becoming a parent yourself. You have a debt to uh, the sages in society who have imparted wisdom. You repay it by becoming wise yourself. And, and you go through these cycles, right, where eventually you figure out, well, I have a debt to the universe for this life, but who do I repay the universe? And, and you know, at, at that height of the mythic narrative, you figure out that the universe and yourself are not any different, right? In, in, in Hinduism, it's called Tattvamasi, that thou art. There are many names for this particular insight uh, across any mythic tradition. Uh, but the point being that you are indebted to yourself <laughs> right which is which is the funniest kind of part and it really makes even more ambiguous and morally ambivalent this thing about debt and how it works um, because what what inevitably ends up happening as you say is that we you know the agricultural revolution begins humans gathering in increasingly large numbers in city-states in the great river valleys and all of a sudden you have sort of powerful kings and governments who have a, a monopoly on violence and who begin to use the language of debt to justify violent social inequality right you have to repay your debts it's written in the, the great myths that this is something that you do but it's no longer this you know sort of hero's journey arc of recognizing that the one that you're repaying is not different from who you already are it gets uh funneled off you know, and you have to repay Pharaoh, you have to repay the king, you have to repay your betters. Uh, and the way in which this is done is precisely through currency, right? So it's incorrect, this Economics 101 story, which is told to you by Milton Keynes and John Maynard Smith and the rest of the boys, is, you know, where they say, first we began with barter and then we ran into this coincidence of once where, you know, if I have bread and you have a fish but i don't want fish today then you're kind of buggered and, <laughs> and you can't get bread so that you know so because there's this coincidence of one's problem then we develop better abstractions of money and we eventually get to currency and that's how money develops it's exactly the wrong way around in fact what begins in every single indigenous culture the world over if you're an anthropologist and actually look at the history is that people have networks of credit right nice people work on credit always uh, and it's really funny how that actually like works out, you know, because that community therefore is defined as people who are all a little bit in debt to one another. And like, you know, mm -hmm. you come and you kind of like borrow my car for the week and I'll come and take three chickens from you. And, and the whole point is that we never repay each other exactly because it's actually really rude. And it says that I no longer want to relate with you. And then sort of every six months or a year, we all gather in the town hall and we have what's called a reckoning because the language of faith and finance is not separate and we're like okay andy owes james 20 potatoes james owes john two chickens john owes andy uh you know a field of carrots so we just kind of cancel everything mm -hmm. out somebody pays someone else a pig and every everything starts from zero again that's that's how credit networks have always worked but what happens when you get these you know river valley civilizations and the agricultural revolution is that currency in the form of coins is issued because it's useful for paying soldiers right so you see that with the development of governments they begin to pay their armies in currency so that their armies can get the supplies in the areas that they needed and that's also where markets develop and 
currency itself. Specifically soldiers too. Specifically that's that's soldiers. what they began paying. Yes. Really? It's that's always fascinating. Soldiers. It's always soldiers. It, 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 the only people who ever used coins of the realm as their first minted is it's always the army. It's used to fund military expansion. And then it turns out, right, and the kings of Lydia and various other places around Turkey and again in the sort of Middle East and Crescent figure out as a result of funding military expansion in coins that it's actually really useful for purposes of taxation as well, right? And uh, so they kind of force it by fiat, which is where the name comes from, by diktat of the king, uh, that everybody has to use this particular coin because it, it increases uh, the amount of tax that they're able to collect. And and so currency itself is backed by this monopoly of violence, and, it's, and it begins with soldiers and markets develop in its wake. The really interesting thing to bring this full circle back to why like cryptocurrency is interesting, valuable, and provides new means of coordination is that cryptography is the only technology we have available to us as private citizens, which provides what's called the defender's advantage. There is this asymmetric nature to elliptic curve cryptography that means that a nation state has to, you know, like there is this, uh, a nation state would have to use basically all of its compute power to break, break your 512-bit key, right? Like, let alone 4,096-bit mm-hmm. key. There's a huge expenditure of resources required to break even a, a single individual's private key, right? Uh, and so, like, in that asymmetric, and in fact, like, if you look into the history of this, you know, Paul Zimmerman shipped PGP, Pretty Good Privacy, as a book in 1995 he couldn't ship the source code because it was restricted under munitions law in the u.s right like cryptography was considered a munition Mm. by all major governments and zimmerman got around that by printing the source code for pgp as a book and then shipping it under first protect first amendment protections right freedom of speech uh that's that's how pgp got out because it was considered so powerful this is cryptography has always been a munition it's been a munition that it provides a defender's advantage. So currency itself comes from the monopolistic nature of violence in nation states. But crypto provides the defender's advantage and balances that, that violence out such that you can organize with other people without the implicit threat of violence, right? We organize with one another, not because there are, you know, like legal dictates, which are always premised on the monopoly of violence, but because there's really, really robust mathematical consensus behind the medium uh, that we work on and that we use to relate to one another. And so all of a sudden, because you have executable language running deterministically on a public network that no one owns and which has baked into its very architecture, the very medium itself is built around a defender's advantage rather than the violence of armies. the whole, you know, economic possibility and pattern is radically different. That's that's really that is that's um, really interesting, and it's actually not something I've thought of previously. Well, I mean, m- much of what you just said, to be honest, but also the idea that the foundation of currency of fiat is to fund armies and. Um, and the reason for that too is because it, it's well, I, I guess like you know how I'm, I'm just like trying to trace that back and, and think about how that actually occurs, and then also uh, 
I, I think it'd be great to kind of qualify the extent to which the fiat system today um, represents you know, the war machine or, 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 or violence, I guess, right? Um, because at the same time, it's also quite practical to participate. And there are there are great things that society has done through this centralization of trust through the dollar, right, and through currency, um, despite the the evils that have also been done, you know, in that way. So you know, I'm not uh, none, none of this story for me is necessarily moral, right? Uh, I'm, I'm, mm. I'm not saying that armies are necessarily evil or that's fiat currency is necessarily bad uh, it's just in, it's really interesting to understand the history of where the stuff comes from and draw your own conclusions right uh, mm -hmm. there are various different reasons uh, to fund armies with the development of coins and, and very interestingly you know this this begins in what's kind of been called but particularly by a man called Carl, Carl Jaspers as the axial age right you, you begin to see the appearance of coins of the realm and well-funded organized armies and um, the subsequent markets that form around those and uh, what's <laughs> what's really interesting is that at a similar time this is kind of 5000 BC uh, uh, not five sorry 500 or 600 BC um, you, you see the development of many organized religions which come about as a response to this materialism right and they're like no like you can't you know you can't be materialistic you've got to just detach from everything don't you know pay attention to any of this rubbish and 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 so religion particularly in its modern form is kind of the response to the you know the appearance of currency almost as soon as you see currency appear in any given place there's very quickly on its heels or concomitant with it because it's not really possible to tell uh these two things appear in tandem and then like as the uh, you know, the empires fall, all of the gold and all of the coins of the realm get put into the churches and into the mosques and into the, um, mm. into the shuls, right? And, and, and they become the vast owners of land and the kind of economic uh, engine of various different economies, which mostly revert back to credits, right? Uh, and just use the... Uh, wealth stored in the churches or whatever a religious institution as a means of uh, collateral essentially um, the yeah the, the the point again in, in studying all of this is certainly not to make any moral statements uh, it's to say that um, you know currencies like the dollar I mean you know the dollar is interesting right particularly because of the petrodollar and it's kind of international equivalent, uh, and and in particular, like the forms of violence which are implicit in any particular medium, right? Again, this is not to make a moral statement about it, but like violence doesn't have to be, you know, the Roman legion rampaging through Britain, uh, you know, raping women and children and doing their thing across the land. That's one form of violence, right? But what about violence against the earth in the form of extractive capitalism that doesn't properly account for its externalities? And more importantly, what about the violence that we do to ourselves through wage slavery, right? Uh, to sell your time uh, to another person 
particularly like in the periods of history which I've been discussing, you you were a slave, right? <laughs> Again, this is not a moral statement. It's just that if you'd gone to somebody in like ancient Greece or indeed ancient Sumer and be like, yes, this person pays me and I just do work for him eight hours a day and gives me, you know, some food and a small stipend, they'd be like, oh, so you're a slave, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> not in a moral way. It's just that that's... <laughs> the vast majority of our economy is organized around this uh, and it's natural for mm. us to operate in this sense but you're <laughs> you're you're selling your time to another person and doing their bidding often to the detriment of your own creativity your own inspiration your own desires and drives in life uh, and that's perverse right it's, it's just that we don't see that because it's again the water that we're that we're swimming in, and it's got to do with the way in which value is created, described, and transferred in the world. And that seems like a very abstract and esoteric point to make, but it's absolutely critical, right? The best kind of analogy or story for this is something called Chesterton's Fence, uh, which has various different versions. But the one I'll tell you now is that there's this monk living in a small English town and gas lights come you know it's the beginning of the industrial revolution and for the first time the municipality comes and they install a gas light uh, on one of the main streets and there's huge consternation about it you know everybody is saying ah oh, this is going to cause all sorts of issues it's not natural we're supposed to uh you know be in the dark at night that's what god intends and uh, very uh, oh and we can't you know like sneak around to the bar or we can't sneak to our mistress's house various different people have all of these different agendas for not wanting the gaslight there and they sort of come to to the, to the monk because that's he's considered one of the wise men in town to kind of adjudicate on this decision and he sort of hears everybody's story and he says well you know before i make a decision it really depends on the philosophy of light Right? What do you think light is? And everybody, of course, you know, just <laughs> kind of rolls their eyes at him and says, oh, this guy, you know, I mean, seriously, the philosophy of light, are you kidding? And, you know, they, they kind of kick him out the town unceremoniously, various different versions of the story have it differently, but they basically just whip him until he leaves uh, and then destroy the lights. Uh, and various bad things then happen in uh in in the wake of that you know, murders increase in the town and there's all sorts of uh you know uh negative behavior as a result of uh you know there having been light for some time and then being plunged into darkness to the extent that a few months later everybody realizes that like yes the monk was right <laughs> if we had understood the philosophy of light at first we could have made a more informed decision <laughs> about this kind of thing so we we have not really understood clearly the history of how we create and describe value in the world and the impact that has on the nature of the way that we organize and relate with one another. Uh, as soon as we can understand more clearly a philosophy of value that is not premised on violence and that is not premised on any kind of uh, powerful institution having to secure that uh, but is rather grounded in a network of timestamp servers that nobody owns and a kind of consensus based on strong mathematics that anybody can audit, 
know, we have, again, the possibility of really understanding why you would want to stand in the light rather than carry on messing around in the darkness. Right. I, that's, wow. I mean, that's a really profound story. Um, I also, I also think, you know, whenever you mentioned, oh, you know, um, uh, whenever people started rolling their eyes at the monk asking about the philosophy of the light, I mean, I'm like thinking about, well, there's going to be a few people rolling their eyes about us talking about the philosophy of money in a lot of ways, you know, because honestly, it's it's very similar, right? And I think that's your point, is the analogy between light and money is a fundamental, it's, it's a resource um, that in a lot of ways, don't spend energy contemplating or thinking about. I think there's some background noise for the garbage truck moving by, but... Um, but it's it is fundamentally important to understand in order to comprehend exactly um, um, or at least try to comprehend the the potential effects of cryptocurrency and also you know to play as devil's advocate as well i would say crypto while it is decentralized from the nation state um does certainly have points of, of centralization and um, whether that's analyzing the miners or analyzing the the Gini coefficient for the uh, spread of wealth or, or capital within the system um, it, it does have potential central points and uh, places that people are clearly manipulating the market but I think the point is that anyone can participate and create new financial systems without the burden of um, the petrodollar, and and there's 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 a potential for a real new um, a new form of currency. The other thing that I uh, that that I, I another thought I've had kind of in this conversation is as we or as you sort of described the the previous system where our foundation value creation exchange came from was credit and people would come with their chickens or corns or or what whatever produce they have share it and then they're owed credit in some way that isn't quite like perfectly aligned and i think similarly um you know today we have dollars ethereum is a great base layer that that's you know they call it the like base transaction layer but I really see there's a lot of value in potential uh, microeconomies springing from crypto, where you have tokens that are representing something more specific, similar to like a chicken coin or an electricity coin, or something that is specific to even a, a particular region or grocery store. Um, the way that that actually evolves, I, I am not sure, but I could see it happening where uh, we are, we're coming from this very high level of abstraction and then uh, that re-fractionalizes into these more specific economies that are represented by specific networks. I'm curious if you have a similar intuition. Sure, yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna stick to uh, you know, the colors that I've painted in this particular podcast, which many of the things that you've mentioned are very interesting to talk about and, and deserve their own whole discussions. What I wanna say, in response to this is, is two things that you're right that people get frustrated with abstract discussions but 
the reason that this one is important is because the developments of networks which no one owns for the description, creation, and transferal of value is a development not of a new kind of language or a new kind of currency. It is a development of the order of language, right? The, the moment in human history where language appeared was a singularity, right? Our ability to relate to and describe and share our consciousness is never the same after that. The same thing has occurred with any kind of vast increase in literacy. If you look uh, throughout history, particularly one of the examples that's always given is the printing press and Gutenberg, right? And being able to print the Bible in English and give the word of God to the common man in a tongue that he could understand. Huge social unrest and Luther and all of the things that happened after that. These singular moments in human socio-political history always occur when you have the developments of the order of, of language, not of a new kind of language, but of an order. Uh, and, and, and I'm claiming that this 2009 represents exactly such a moment. Uh, and, and, and that's why it's worth discussing this, because like, if you grasp that, then you have a North Star by which you can figure out which of these millions of protocols are actually interesting, which of these millions of tokens are actually interesting. And you can think in higher order ways that have to do with analysis and synthesis about how can we implement credits on a network which is fundamentally about assets? How can we change the consensus protocol to not be so far in favor of early investors? How can we improve the Gini coefficients on these networks? How can we use some coefficient not at all related to Gini, but like what we're using on ETH2 which is a much better and more efficient means of measuring inequality. You know, all of these things become possible, but you need the North Star first. And the reason for this, you know, is again, it has to do with one of my favorite topics, which is the difference between finite and infinite games. And in finite games, you're playing to win. In infinite games, you're playing to carry on playing. It's said that finite players play within boundaries. Infinite players play with boundaries. Right? And the whole point is that, yes, you can see that there are people manipulating the markets in Bitcoin and ETH and any of the other cryptocurrencies. But that's the point. <laughs> you can see it, right? <laughs> Whereas in like old school traditional markets, I'll tell you a very brief story. My dad was a banker here in South Africa, one of the big banks. He was in charge for a little while of trying to improve their script system, script being the paper uh, that share certificates are written on, right? And the stories about this kind of stuff are crazy because you would actually have to transport the paper from one bank to another and from various stockbrokers to others when trades were made, right? And never mind the fact that it's T plus three and all of these other incredibly you know, arcane features of stock exchanges that still exist to this day. But you know, this bank that he worked for would literally receive trucks on a daily basis full of paper, right? And he would, <laughs> he would have to figure out how to account for this and get it into the books in an efficient way, right? Which is an insane thing to have to do. And the amount of money that, you know, always, it would never balance. Never, he's never not once in his life did this stuff balance. And, and you would always have a, a balancing item at the end of each day and at the end of each cycle with script in transit, which was just like paper that nobody knew where the hell it was. The, this is one story of, of many which are just fantastic to hear because the the financial system as, as it is and as it always has been but particularly you know in the last 
well, let's say 13 years since 2008, but even before that, since the 80s and before, right? It's always been a game. It's always been highly manipulatable, but it's only been the people who can speak the language and who have access to the club that have been able to do so. And it's very difficult for us to tell that they're doing that. And if they, even if we can tell that there's manipulation going on, it's very difficult to tell who it is. You can tell <laughs> when Bitcoin and other things are being manipulated. And that simple fact is an incredible step forward. It's not, I'm not saying that it's like the Holy Grail, but it's really interesting that, that that is a feature of these things, right? And what it does, particularly because all of these things are open source, ownerless, global, borderless, and peer-to-peer, -peer, it means that we can begin to play infinite games with one another, right? Games not in which like we win or lose, uh, right? But figure out ways of trading with one another, which are fundamentally about keeping the game going, about playing with boundaries, not within them. Uh, and you know, again, that, that requires an appreciation of this, the shift in order which has happened. Uh, and, and once you have that, then, yeah, you know, I mean, hell, let's talk about circles and how we can implement credits. And let's talk about various kinds of carbon credit systems that would be very interesting to try and account for in real time the damage that we're doing to the planet. And, you know, I mean, these things are you know, whole podcasts on their own, right? That's exactly right. That's okay. I think that's plenty of information for anyone who's listening to go to sift through and sort of absorb. Um, I mean, it's been amazing to talk to you. And I came, you know, I came here, and I think the the, the episode uh, question to me was, where does cryptocurrency come from? And I knew talking to you would be it would uh, you know it would be a fruitful conversation with that kind of open prompt, um, but. It's, it's, I mean, I've learned myself, you know, from this conversation. And I think in, in a lot of ways, the takeaway is to some extent that cryptocurrency is actually a, a paradigm shift in the way we communicate on a global level. And it's an evolution of language. It's almost a, an approach to a universal language in some ways, right? Um, that, that's instant, globally transferable and understandable across uh, nations would you say that's that's a decent that's uh, a summary of the great summation i have a, another whole podcast of material on universal languages and on paradigms what i will say very briefly Amazing. on this is that we've cycled through very many paradigms throughout human history we're always aware you know as soon as you label something a paradigm then it's often a mere paradigm and we've moved out of it but it's not possible really to know exactly which paradigm we operate within but there's an amazing essay written in <clears throat> 1980 by a lady called Marianne Brunn called Paradigms, the Inertia of Language. And in it, she makes the point that the paradigm we're currently stuck within is something called the reward-orientated hierarchy, which says that human beings mm. need to earn the basic necessities of life. And if we could come up with a fundamentally economic language, largely free from the inertia of past paradigms, we could implement a society that rewards people their basic needs and what they need to survive before and so that the purpose of a just and equitable society can be realized, not the other way around. And that to me is the ultimate goal, right? Like how do we make sure that people's needs and the basic levels of survival are fulfilled before and so that just society can exist? Uh, and and the way it is at the moment is the complete opposite of that. But we have a chance mm. for the first time in a very long time 
kind of since the axial mm. age to uh, to have a go at, at not just thinking about this stuff and writing essays in linguistic in natural language but writing smart contracts in executable code that run on a global ledger that nobody can stop uh, and, and that's that's exciting. that's really exciting I love it I, I absolutely love it and there's definitely a few more topics that I'd love to uh, explore with you at a later date um, both this idea or concept of how would you execute something like that? How would you approach that that new paradigm of value transfer where we are supporting humans' based needs prior to their contribution to society and in order for them to contribute to society? I think that's brilliant. Um, um, and also is like uh, touches on, a, on on many sort of political boundaries there. Um, and then the second too, which I think is the existential crisis or question of our time really is the market systems and how we could potentially really leverage crypto in order to um, break through that that barrier because you know ultimately um, we will never make progress without a, a carbon market as far as in increasing our ability to create a sustainable society. Um, at least that is, you know, my opinion is, is we really need economic incentives in order for us to uh, combat, you know, fossil fuels or the essentially reconfigure our, our habits as a society. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of teams working on that, but I also, you know, I, I, it's, it's kind of uh, nebulous the amount of traction that you should have. But um, anyway, this has been awesome. Thank you for for spending some time with us, Andy. I really appreciate it. Sure, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you want to explore more and deepen your understanding of cryptocurrency concepts and mechanisms available today, please visit our Gitbook or Crypto Encyclopedia. You can find it on our website at squareone.tech. Thanks for listening. This program is made possible by the Bloom Community Grants Program. Bloom is sponsoring research and development grants to the crypto community to collaborate on some exciting new initiatives to benefit the crypto ecosystem. If you have an idea for something to explore in token economics, unsecured DeFi lending, or token utility, reach out to grants at bloom.co.